I'm Marty Moscoway, and welcome to The Connection. David Brooks writes in his new book, How to Know a Person, that the mantra of his upbringing was, think Yiddish, act British. His family was reserved with a stiff upper lip approach to life and each other. There was love in the house, just not touchy or feely. David Brooks has written a self-help book for himself and for the many who feel lonely and invisible. He writes, we're living in the middle of some sort of vast emotional, relational, and spiritual crisis. It's as if people across society have lost the ability to see and understand one another, thus producing a culture that can be brutalizing and isolating. The good news is that there are teachable skills about how to connect with other people to make them feel known, understood, and valued. David Brooks is an op-ed columnist for The New York Times, a writer for The Atlantic. He's a regular on the PBS NewsHour, and he joins us here in our Philadelphia studios. And David Brooks, nice to have you with us on The Connection. It's great to be back with you after many years. (laughs) After many, many years and several books in between. Well, I'd love to have you read from the very beginning of your book. I, I, I mentioned the fact that you said you grew up, you know, thinking British, but uh, thinking Yiddish, but acting British. Can you complete that? Sure. Paragraph? So here's a section from the very first page of my book. When I was four, my nursery school teacher apparently told my parents, David doesn't always play with the other children. A lot of the time he stands off to the side and observes them. Whether it was nature or nurture, a certain aloofness became part of my personality. By high school, at Radnor High School, I had taken up long-term residency inside my own head. I felt most alive when I was engaged in the solitary business of writing. Junior year, I wanted to date a woman named Bernice. But after doing some intel gathering, I discovered she wanted to go out and date another guy. I was shocked. I remember telling myself, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. It's quite possible that I had a somewhat constrained view of how social life worked for most people. Well, I really appreciated there. There are moments in this book where you talk about David Brooks, uh, yeah. the, the person David Brooks. As a kid, were you a happy kid? Yeah, I was happy. I was just aloof. I remember even in my 20s thinking, you know, it's good that I'm so shallow because I see other people suffering from their depths. And I'm just shallow. <laughs> I'm fine. And unfortunately, life happened and I I became <laughs> deeper, but a little sadder. So I, like, I feel emotions now. Then sometimes they're great, but sometimes they're just terrible. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So you feel like deeper, but sadder. I think so. You know, I I, I definitely feel longings. Um, I once, t- I used to teach a course and I, um, I, I used to teach kids about how to make commitments and moral formation. And one of my best students ever said, you know, your course has made me a lot sadder. And I uh-huh. took that as a win because uh, you should experience life in all its fullness. And I think I learned, one of my heroes is a novelist named Frederick Beekner, whose dad took his own life when Beekner was nine. Huh. And he didn't grieve him till middle age. And he came to realize that if you cut yourself off from feeling the pain of life, you've cut yourself off from the depths of life itself, and you've cut yourself off from other people. And so my life story has been one of trying to become uh, a deeper and fuller human being. And I write these books to try to you know, work my way toward the progress. Uh, one of my favorite quotes about writing is, we writers are beggars who tell other beggars where we found bread. <laughs> and so if I find something I find useful to be a better human being, I put it in the pages of a book. I hope it helps people. Well, it's interesting. So do you think of research as me-search? 
Oh, for sure. Like I, I'm sure. I think that's true of almost everybody, whether sure. we admit it or not. Sure. Uh, and so, yes, I'm I'm uh, working out my stuff in public. Well, you describe yourself again. This is sort of before you you decided to live a deeper, fuller <laughs> life. That you were this practiced escape artist. That you sort of knew how to get yourself out of a situation. What do you think you were afraid of? Yeah, it's a good question. I think if if you had come to me with a vulnerability, I w- probably would have deflected. And I think partly it was fear of emotion, um, fear, but mostly fear of not knowing what to say. And so if you come to me, you've suffered the loss of a parent or something. Uh, I just wouldn't know how to sit there with you in that emotion. And because to do that requires some uh, vulnerability on my own part. And so in order to behold somebody, you have to be willing to be beheld. And so I think I was just um, nervous around that. Uh, And so I led my conversational life at a certain distance. Right. I mean, do you think it was shyness or you just you just didn't know how to do this thing? That's really hard to do, by yeah. the way. No, I think, you know, to know another person, you have to have an open heart. But that's not enough. You have to have skills. You have to know how to be a great conversationalist. And people think they're better than they really are in right. conversation. Right. Um, you have to know how to ask the right question at the right time. You have to know how to reveal vulnerability at the right pace, not too fast, not too slow. You have to know how to disagree well. Uh, and these are all just social skills. And in the book, I just try to walk people through the skills from the first moment you meet a stranger to just hanging around with them to having a great conversation with them. And then the harder part, sitting with someone in, in grief, sitting with someone who really despises your political point of view <laughs> and how you handle that. And so the book is meant to teach skills, and I'm teaching myself as well. Sure. Was there a moment or perhaps a series of moments where you felt, you know, I don't want to be this person or I don't want to live this life that I'm living. Yeah, I think part of it, well, you know, you have these moments in life that um, tear you open if you, whether you want to or not. Yeah. And, of course, being a parent uh, was an emotional revolution. You discover layers of love you didn't know existed. And then, you know, I went through a hard time in 2013, uh, divorce, and uh, realized that too much of my life was focused around work. Mm-hmm. And I, I say in a previous book that I had work friends that I could have lunch with and talk politics about over uh, the weekdays, but I had no weekend friends. And so those are the people you just hang out with at the, at the weekends. And I just became dissatisfied with that ca- kind of life. It, it was lonely. Uh, and um, so I just, you know, try to learn how to do this thing called yeah. connecting with other people. Well, it's interesting because you say, in spite of all the things you tell us about yourself, that you are a grower, that that is part of who you are. Yeah, and I tell in the book this embarrassing story because it involves name dropping. <laughs> but so I, I was interviewed by Oprah twice in my life, mm-hmm. but in 2014 and 2019. And after the last interview, she pulled me aside and said, I've rarely seen somebody change so much in middle age. You were so blocked before. Yeah. And I took that as a great um, a moment for me because it had shown that I had um, made some progress in this. And she noticed. She's Oprah. If she, <laughs> if she's going to know. <laughs> she's the expert here, so she she got to take her word for it. Did you think of therapy? Was that ever something you wanted to do? I, I never really did. I, I my therapy is is comes in writing, uh, and reading, and and now it's comes in. You know, one of the things therapists do is they're story editors. They take the story we tell, and usually people go into therapy because their story is not working. Uh, often because they get causation wrong. They they blame themselves for things that are not their fault, and they blame other people for things that are their fault. And so stories just make edit, 
therapists go, you go over the story and story and story, mm -hmm. and you, you iron out your story so it's a more accurate story. But I've talked to therapists about this, and they say, you know, friends can do this. There's nothing that happens in the therapist's room, one therapist told me, that can't happen in a friendship. And so if you tell me your life story and I say, aren't you leaving this out? Isn't that part a little too convenient? And then we begin to pull out the deeper truths. Uh, and, and that's, I think, mm -hmm. uh, something friends can do for each other if they have the skills. You mentioned and you write that, you know, being open-hearted, is, it's a good start, but that yeah. it's not enough and that it requires certain kinds of skills, being curious about other people, being a good listener, uh, seeing another person's point of view, as you mentioned, disagreeing without hurting others. Um, did you have to go to sort of your head to understand your heart? Yeah, because that's who I am. I went to the University of Chicago where we learned to <laughs> live in our head. And so, like, I wrote a book called The Social Animal about emotion. Yeah. Who, who decides to <laughs> feel emotions by writing a book about emotion? Uh, but And so this book is, you know, it is practical skills. So in the middle of the book, for example, I have a chapter on how to become a better conversationalist. Yeah. And some of the tips I got from the experts were, like, be a loud listener. Like, I have a friend who, um, when you talk to him, uh, his name is Andy Crouch. I should mention his name. He lives in Swarthmore. Uh, uh, he, he's like a Pentecostal choir. He's like going, ah, yes, yes, amen, amen, preach. Just love talking to that guy. Uh, another, because he's egging you on, Yeah, right? he's, it's an encouragement. You, you should listen so actively you're burning calories. That's my view. And so uh, things to avoid. Uh, don't be a topper. If you tell me you're having problems with your teenage son, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, I know what you're going through. I'm having problems with my Tommy. And it sounds like I'm relating, but what I'm really doing is shifting the conversation from your problem to me. And so it's a habit a lot of us have, but it's not a great conversational habit. And so I, I walk through these various conversational tips just to get better at this thing. And when you learn them, you learn them as skills. But when you practice them, you're not thinking about them. Right. It's like going to acting school. Like actors learn certain techniques, but when they're on stage, they're not thinking about the techniques. They become internalized as their way of life. And so... My goal is to show up differently in because of what I've learned working on this book. In fact, actors, when they're on the stage, are not acting. I mean, the right. worst thing that they could be called is stop acting. Yeah. You know, be, be that person. It's funny you mentioned that because I, I did all these interviews for the book, and I talked to therapists, cognitive scientists, biographers who are good at seeing others, actually uh, talk show hosts. Mm -hmm. I mean, your job is to get us be ourselves. That's your job. Uh, you're very good at it. Uh, but some of the people that were really um, – most fun to talk to were actors because they had to figure out how to get into a role. Uh, and Viola Davis gave an interview, not to me, another person, where she just said, we're, we're, we're thieves. We're looking at how, well, how did this person eat that? Uh, and why did they lean their head that way? Why do they feel anxious that way? I interviewed Matthew McConaughey, uh, and he said, I try to find the one physical gesture that summarizes the person's character. And so he said, Some, once I played a guy who was a front hands in the front pocket kind of guy. <laughs> so he, was, he had his hands in the front pocket, his shoulders were stooped over. And so when that guy was going to be assertive and be big, he was going to be fake because it's not his natural mode. And so it was that one thing, the hands in the front pocket guy. I, when he said that, I thought of Richard Nixon somehow. You know, he, he was sort yeah. of stooped over. Yeah. Uh, and so actors were phenomenal. And, and the research shows that if you want to improve the empathy of your kids, get them active in high school drama. Interesting. Playing playing another role in high school drama or any kind of drama really improves empathy skills. Because acting is about paying attention. 
It's and about, you write a lot about paying attention, which, of course, involves listening and eye contact when yeah. you can have it. And, you know, one of my heroes in the book is a novelist and philosopher named Iris Murdoch. And she said, attention is the essential moral act, that usually we see the world in self-serving ways, but we want to get the self out of the way so we can see reality. And what we want to do is cast what she calls a just and loving attention on others. Uh, and so that, act, that quality of the attention you bring to the world, if, if you bring a judgmental form of attention, you'll see flaws in everybody. Mm -hmm. But if you bring a generous form of attention, then you'll see people doing the best they can. Uh, and so I think that quality of attention is just a, a beautiful moral act uh, that is at the core of a lot of other, other moral acts. We're almost up on a break, but I'm thinking about those people who, when you're talking to them, do make you feel like you are the only person in the room. I mean, that is a real skill. Yeah, and I, in the, I made this dualism between diminishers and illuminators. Yeah. And diminishers are people who make you stereotype you, who aren't curious about you, don't ask questions. And illuminators are people who make you feel lit up and make you feel you're the only one in the room. And so politically, Bill Clinton was, had famously had this ability. But uh, there was a novelist who wrote about 100 and some odd years ago named Ian e. Forster. And his biographer said of him, he listened with such intensity that you had to be your best, most honest self. And I'd, I'd love to go through life being able to bring out the best, most honest version of each person that you encounter. Well, they're playing my song here. Let's take a very short break, and we'll get back to our conversation with David Brooks. He is, of course, a columnist for The New York Times. He's a regular on the PBS NewsHour, and he's written another book. It's called How to Know a Person. We've got much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with David Brooks. Again, he's got a new book. It's titled How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. I'd love to have you talk about, uh, we were talking about people paying attention to other people. And you have a really lovely story about a, a woman named Gillian Sawyer. Tell us that story. Yeah, she was a student of mine at Yale, uh, and uh, she her dad died of pancreatic cancer while, I think, while she was in college. And as he was dying, they talked about the fact that he would probably miss many of her major life events, like a wedding. Uh, and after college, she um, was invited to be a bridesmaid at her, one of her friend's wedding. And she was a bridesmaid, and she watched the father of the bride give this beautiful toast about his daughter. And she started getting sad. And then it came time for the father-daughter dance. And she thought, well, I, I just can't. Um, this... I have to skip this one. And so she left the reception and went to the restroom to have a cry. And when she got out of the restroom, she found that all the people at her table and the adjoining table had gotten up from their seats and were waiting outside the restroom. And so she came out, and she let me quote, which I do in the book from her paper, which she describes this. Uh, and she says, nobody said a word. They just gave her a hug. They didn't linger to try to talk about her grief or whatever. They just gave her a hug. And she said, I never appreciated the power of showing up in silence. It was exactly what I needed. Yeah. And I'm so, crying. Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's I'm such a, little... a touching story. I mean, obviously, the ability to 
know her to know what she's feeling, to have that kind of empathy for what this experience was like for her, but not to be able to take it away from her, but just to be with her. And really not to make yourself and whatever you might say the center of the story, but just be her, I'm here for you. And that really is the art of presence. And I I think we, I I learned in like years ago, when somebody dies, sometimes they just, the, the family just wants you to show up. They don't need you to say anything profound. They just need presence. And then one of the skills of empathy, empathy is three separate skills. It's mirroring. It's catching the emotion so you sort of know what emotion is going through. Then it's mentalizing. It's thinking about what, how is this person experiencing it. And then it's caring. Like a, a con man is really good at, empath- at, at like empathy, at knowing what you're feeling, but sure. they don't care. <laughs> and so caring is knowing to know, I'm not going to do what's comfortable for me. I'm going to do what's comfortable for you. So I have a story from uh, Rabbi Elliot Kukla who had a congregant who was a woman who'd suffered brain injury and she would just suddenly fall to the ground. And she told him that people immediately try to lift her up because it's so uncomfortable to see an adult lying on the ground. And she said, what I really need at that moment is somebody just to get on the ground with me. Yeah. yeah. And that's a good metaphor for how we should show up to a lot of people. Sometimes you just have to get on the ground with somebody. But can you teach caring I mean, empathy, that sort of open-heartedness that you talked about. I mean, yeah, yeah, these are skills, these are things people can do, but can you teach that feeling? Yeah, I, I t- see empathy as like an athletic ability. Some people are born with more of it than others, but everybody needs training, and you can get better with practice. And so one, one of the things you can do just as a baseline is uh, study the humanities. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, they get dismissed as these naive majors but the humanities is where you go to learn about people. And if you can't, if you don't know about people, you'll be miserable in your life and you'll make people around you miserable. So just as a baseline to read Tolstoy, to read George Eliot, to Jane Austen, you understand a little more how people operate. Uh, and then if you have enough wide experiences and ask people, and it, it, it's an illusion to think you can imagine what's going on in somebody else's head. You have to ask them. You have to get their point of view. And the goal is to try to see the world a little hmm. the way they see it. And that comes from the conversations you have over maybe months or years with a friend, and suddenly you know, though, this is what they need right now. Yeah. I remember uh, interviewing someone years ago um, at a local medical school who introduced this idea of teaching uh, literature to, to doctors because for the exact reason that you said, to help us understand or help them understand the human condition. Yeah, no, and the, uh, when I talk to people over the last four years working on the book, tell me about a time you felt invisible. Uh, and a lot of the cases were doctors, where I, I went in, they didn't see me as a person, they saw me as a body. Uh, and, or a disease. Or a disease, and, and I think there's a statistic out there that doctors typically wait an average of like 16 seconds to let the patient describe what's going on before they start intervening. And that's just too fast. That's not enough. Um, and so I, I do think um, you can get better at, at doing that. You say we're in a crisis of, of loneliness, and clearly there are a lot of very lonely people, not just in this country but around the world, but a crisis of loneliness and meanness. Are the two connected? I think they are. I mean, the statistics are baffling to me. Um, the, the rise of depression, rise of suicide... The number of people not involved in any romantic relationship is up by a third. The number of people who say they have no close personal friends has gone up by four times. And if you feel invisible and unseen, the way a lot of people do, then you're going to regard that as an injustice, which it is, and you're going to lash out. And so sadness leads to meanness because you want to attack the world. 
Uh, and this is the, one of the inspirations for the book was Ralph Ellison's book, Invisible Man. Oh, sure. And in the first passage there, in the first, very first page, he describes how people look at me and they see everything but me. They see their own imagination projected onto me or they see around me. They don't see me. And he says, I want to prove to the world I'm part of the life. And so I often want to strike out with my fists to show I'm here. And he said, sadly, it rarely ends well. Hmm. And so I do think that that feeling of, of invisibility is a feeling of rejection and a feeling of humiliation. And you want to beat back at the people who are not treating you with respect. Do you think we were less lonely and even nicer back in the 1950s and 60s? I'm a baby boomer. You know, I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be LGBTQ in the 50s or right, 60s right. or African-American. I mean, you know, Betty Friedan told us yeah. about the kind of problem that had no name back in right. those days. I, there's never a moment I would want to go back to. Um, and so uh, what is racism a f- form of not seeing? It's stereotyping. Absolutely. Uh, and what is sexism or anti-Semitism? It, it's all a form of not seeing the human being in front of you. And so I think we've made some progress on all those fronts. Nonetheless, despite all that, the breakdown, the social breakdown is somehow new. Why are depression, why is suicide up by a third and much higher among teenagers? Uh, why do now the number of people who rate themselves in the lowest level of happiness, why is that up by 50%? Why do 45% of teenagers say they're persistently hopeless and, de- and despondent? Something is going on here. And it's really, some of it is, this, is social media and the cell phone. Some of it is that. But social media and cell phones are everywhere in the world. Sure. But the problem is largely here. Here in the United in States. And so I, I think... I tell a lot of stories, but one of them is um, we just don't treat each other with consideration. Mm. Uh, and so the, if humanization is, is anything that denies somebody the human face, or dehumanization is that, then humanization is everybody, is the effort to see the world from another point of view. And in, my, in these bitter times, my heroes are, are defiant humanists, the people who say, yes, it's bitter, yes, I'm going to mm-hmm. come under attack, but I'm going to try to see you, and I'm going to be vulnerable. And you may hurt me, but I'm still going to try to be vulnerable because it's the only way to fight back. Do you think it's our capitalist, our way of doing capitalism in this country where there are winners and losers, a growing yeah. divide between rich and poor yeah, um, I, that, 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 that really disconnects people but also makes them feel as if they can't live the life they want to live? Yeah, I think for sure that, that, dis- that inequality is widely separates people's life experiences so they have less in common. And then when you get wide inequalities, the people on the bottom of of society see the world, in my view, often more accurately than the people on the top. That a lot of rich people don't even see the people providing service around them. And then if you're being sat- They're the invisible ones, right? They're the, right. And if you're being sat on, you understand every shift of weight of the person who's sitting on you. But if you're sitting on someone, I mean this metaphorically, then you may not even feel it. And so I think that's part of the, one of the reasons that this, this has happened because we, we're not leading mm-hmm. similar lives and we're not conversing to each other as equals. And that conversation across inequality is one of the hardest conversations yeah. to have. If I'm a super well-educated New York Times columnist and I'm talking to a guy who hasn't got out of high school, I get to show up as myself and he's not sure which version of himself he can bring to my quarter. And so I've got to try to do everything I can to say you can be yourself here. And it may not be much, but it's an effort to try to cross that chasm 
Finland often be, you know, gets the honor of being the so-called happiest country in the world. But I did a quick Google. Um, there's community, there's freedom, there's healthy life expectancies, there's a different kind of GDP per capita. There are other things as well. Nothing is perfect, of course, but right. it's interesting to compare and contrast that. Yeah, I mean, the health statistics are very much connected to the social statistics. And mm -hmm. loneliness really is a form of, of physical pain. Uh, and lonely people live less long. Uh, they suffer all sorts of greater illnesses. And so the idea that our body uh, is, not, is unrelated to our power of social connection. And I, I shouldn't say this is not only about people who are lonely. Uh, all of us could be a lot better at understanding those around us. And even you know, one of the more prosaic studies I said in the book is from McKinsey. They asked CEOs, why are people leaving your companies? And, and the CEO said, well, people leave here, my company to make more money. And then they asked the people who left the company, and the number one answer was, my boss or my manager didn't recognize me. And so if you're running an organization, or you're, if you're running a family, or if you're teaching kids, you've got to try to understand them. And those moments of understanding, I'm now riffing, I'm thinking of my days in Radnor High School, and, <laughs> and I had a teacher in 11th grade named Mrs. Doosnap. Doosnap. Doosnap was her name. And uh, in the middle of class one day, I was saying some smart alecky thing, which is what I used to do, or maybe sometimes still do. Um, and she called me out in front of the whole class and said, David, you're trying to get by on glibness. Stop it. And on the one hand, I felt humiliated, like in front of the whole class. On the other hand, I thought, wow, she really knows me. <laughs> I'm honored. And so um, teachers, you know, to teach well, you have to not only see the, the weakness of a student, but to see the potential in the student. Another teaching story that I put in the book is a friend of mine, his daughter was struggling through second grade. And the teacher said, you know, uh, you're really good at thinking before you speak. And that one comment turned her year around because it told her that the thing she thought was a weakness, her social awkwardness, was a strength. And so teachers have this tremendous ability, to, to, the good teachers have this tremendous ability to do this. Uh, and, it, and when I ask people about the times they felt seen, they remember with glowing eyes yeah. somebody who did something like that. And sometimes it's that one thing, right? It's just that one moment when someone noticed something. Yeah, and none, none of, uh, I have books and uh, stories in the book that are dramatic, a, a deathbed right. scene where people went around and told the dying man what he meant to them. And that was, those were found moments of seeing. But a lot of the moments of seeing are prosaic, like the, the teacher in the classroom. Yeah. Or some woman told me about the time when she was 13 she first tasted alcohol. She got so drunk, she could. She got. She fell down on the porch. Couldn't get up. And her dad came out, who's strict disciplinarian, and she thought he was going to scream at her, and say all the things that were already going on in her own head, which was, "I'm bad. I'm bad." Instead, he just scoops her up, carries her into the sofa, and says, "There'll be no punishment here. You've had an experience." Right. And he had presence of mind to know that she didn't need to be screamed at. She already knew what she had done, yeah. and that's a, a version of seeing in everyday life. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's uh, David Brooks, our guest today on The Connection. He's got a new book. It's titled How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. I don't get stuck talking about politics, but nonetheless, we we're talking about the sort of disconnect that so many people feel. How much do you think is that is driven by our partisan politics? Yeah, well, we're, we're so separate. We, we've sorted each other pretty well. And so blues live into with blues. Different camps. Into different camps and into different cities and different occupations. Uh, and so we look at each other across these lines with blind incomprehension. I'm not a. I'm a pretty vocal critic of Donald Trump. And like I think, how could anybody like that guy? 
and so, you know, in 2015, and maybe this is part of the ancestral roots of this book, I haven't thought about it. In 2015, I wrote about 600 columns saying, don't worry, Donald Trump will never get the Republican nomination. <laughs> you and a whole lot of other people <laughs> did that. <laughs> so wrong. And at the time, I was living in Washington. I, my social life was in New York, and I was teaching at Yale. So how could I be out of touch with America? <laughs> like, I'm writing the SL every day. <laughs> and, and so I've spent a lot of time trying to interview um, Trump supporters and really spending doing the legwork. And so I'm usually in two or three states a week. I visit 35 to 40 states a year. And I, you would call it hanging out at a diner or a bar. I call it reporting. <laughs> and so I just strike up Asking these conversations. Asking questions, right? Yeah. Asking questions. And th- this, is, well, this is what we both do in our professions. But how many people don't ask questions? I, I mentioned I, I leave a party sometimes, uh, and I think, wow, that whole time nobody asked me a question. And I think only about a 30, 30% of Americans are question askers. Mm. And the quality of your conversation is going to be determined by the quality of your questions. And so I, don't, I no longer ask people, what do you believe? I say, tell me how you came to believe that. Hmm. And that way, subtle difference. But but now they're suddenly they're telling me a story about some experience they had or some authority figure who shaped their values. It's just more interesting. And frankly, we're having a nice conversation here. But I used to be a lot on Meet the Press and those Sunday morning talk shows. The the journalist asks a bunch of gotcha questions. The politician gives a bunch of canned answers. It's not that useful. It's not that interesting. Why why don't they just say, "Tell me your story. Why'd you get into politics? Like, who are you?" It would yield a better politics and, frankly, I think be a little more interesting. Well, and surprise, surprise, people like to be asked questions about themselves and what <laughs> they believe and who their parents were and how they grew up. Yeah, I've found, I ask people, and you, I, I would ask you, how many times do people say none of your damn business? And yeah, my experience, barely. never, almost never. And sometimes people have never asked the, been asked these questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy named Dan McAdams who works at Northwestern who studies how people tell their life stories. So he calls people in for a research session, and he asks them about the high points of their life, the low points of their life, the turning points of their life. And after four hours, he says about half the people cry at some point. And then he hands them a little check for to compensate them for their time. And a certain number of people say, take your money. This has been one of the best afternoons of my life that no one has ever asked me this stuff. And so I find people love to ask. And what they really love to talk about, they love to talk about it about anything they're proud about. So if you can find something they're proud about, they love to talk about that. They love to talk about their childhood. Yeah, and I, I find I'm not shy about asking people about their childhood. Uh, or who were you in high school and how has that changed? Well, here I am. I'm going to hijack your, your response there. When I get together with my siblings, what do we talk about? Our childhoods. Oh, yeah. See? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's a great connector. It is. And we all, you know, Toni Morrison once said, you have to, we live our childhoods twice. Once when we live through it and then when we go back and discover the meaning of them. Yeah. And so especially if you were siblings and you have a shared home, then there's a lot to work over. <laughs> Indeed. You also say, and I, I really like the way you frame this, which is learn to be an accompanist. Yeah. The way a piano a piano play, a pianist would would play for a singer. Yeah. So most of life we're not having deep conversation. We're just getting to know each other. And so accompaniment is another centered way of being uh, in the world. And that's where you're, 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 you're just willing to go where they're going to go. And you're willing to take the time for the relationship to develop. And so accompaniment is, um, it can be as simple as just letting slowly develop. 
And so I have friends who, who say, we like our friends to be lingerable. 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 So if they're going to come over for dinner, we're going to linger. And we'll sit, and after the meal will be served, we're just going to linger. And that's a good way to be uh, accompaniment. Another good way to practice the art of accompaniment is to be playful. I find when people are playing, they're themselves, they're natural. And so I have buddies I've played basketball with, uh, and if people have seen me, they can imagine how terrible my <laughs> basketball game is. Um, but you keep playing. I keep playing. I yeah. enjoy it. Uh, and uh, But we've never exchanged deep words, but we're high-fiving, we're trash-talking, our passing is a form of play. And so you sort of get to know the person at a different level in a natural way. And uh, I tell the story of my when my youngest, my oldest son was like 14 months. Um, we're in Brussels. He gets up at four every morning. God bless him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we play till about 10 in the morning when I go off to work. And at about 14 months, I can't remember the exact age, but I think, wow, I know him better than I know anybody. And he probably knows me better than anybody's known me because I've been so open with him. And we'd never exchanged a word because he couldn't talk yet. And so there's just this play can be very powerful before words. And that is David Brooks, our guest today on The Connection. We're talking about uh, his new book. It's titled How to Know a Person, the Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss Cohen talking with David Brooks. Again, he's got a new book, How to Know a Person. He also is a columnist for The New York Times. He writes for The Atlantic, and he's a regular on the PBS NewsHour. Just picking up on on conversation, you talk about... um, the importance of, of asking questions, which is certainly part of a conversation. But I like the way you said a good conversation starts in one place and ends up in another. Yeah. A bad conversation is people making statements at each other. Yes. That's I, a bad conversation. A good conversation is a journey. Somebody says something and you pick up on it and you think, oh, that's interesting. Let me add this. And then the other person adds that and adds that and adds that. And so it, it, it goes from here to there. And you're on a journey, of voy- a voyage of discovery together. You know, I, I often think that it's also people react to tone as much as they do to content, or maybe even more. Yeah. That sort of hearing what's coming at you, it, the, the emotions coming at you can sort of overwhelm the words. Yeah, one of the, my favorite books that I read was called Crucial Conversations. And they say every conversation exists at, exists at two levels. What we're nominally talking about is one level. And then the flow of emotions that are ex- being exchanged as we talk. So with every statement... I'm either making you feel more safe or less safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, with every statement, I'm feeling, I'm showing my motivations. Here's why I'm telling you this. And so you, you have to pay attention to that under conversation, which, and if I'm showing you disrespect in that, con- in that conversation, if I'm making you feel unsafe, well, then it's going to be a pretty bad conversation. Sure, and there's body language on top of that yeah. as well. I mean, it's, you know, conversation looks so simple, but there are all these things that are Yeah, even going the things on. we don't think about is, emo- is uh, smell. We're mammals. So we're smelling each other all the time, uh, and w- our level of comfort, whether there's, quote, chemistry between us, a lot of that is going to be smell and things yeah. like that. Yeah. I've often seen, I'm sure you have as well, people that just don't know how to read a room, <laughs> you know, and maybe go on and on and on and on yeah. and on, <laughs> and everyone is kind of squirming in their seats or looking at their watches or rolling yeah. their eyes or falling asleep. Yeah, I have a little, a short, very short section, a little test you can give yourself to see how good you are at empathy. Yeah. And if people are always saying to you, you know, you go too far in driving home your points, you're probably kind of low. 
or if you uh, say, I don't mind showing up late when I'm meeting a friend, that's a sign of low empathy. On the other hand, if you say, if you find social conflict painful, that's a sign of high empathy. Uh, and so there, we're, we all have a certain set point, but as I say, we can all get a lot better. Yeah. I also, th- I mean, conflict is difficult between anybody. I mean, mm-hmm. disagreements, conflicts, arguments. And I, I think of people in my own life where they're just things we're just not going to talk about because I know it's going to hurt the relationship. Right. And I, I think that's okay. Yeah, no, I think it's totally fine. I have members of my own family who t- refuse to discuss the Middle East because oh. they're on the opposite sides and they know. And I have a lot of friends uh, these days uh, who are Trump supporters, and we just don't talk about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. does it feel like you don't have a full relationship where you can just carve out another way of being with each other? I find not talking about politics is fine for our friendship. That the uh, One of my favorite couplets is by Samuel Johnson, of all the things that human hearts endure— how few are those that kings can cause and cure. Mm. And what he's saying is that the political leaders in our life are important, but what really matters is the quality of our relationships, the quality of our character, uh, and how we treat each other, how we treat the earth, um, and these are far deeper than legislation or we get, what gets talked about in a political rally. And so I find I can have very good friendships and we never talk politics. Yeah, yeah. Do you think we're in some kind of a moral crisis I do, actually. You know, and, and it, it's sad to say because everyone always says, oh, the times are morally deteriorating. But, you know, morality is not just um, a bunch of commandments, though it is that. Morality is treating other people with consideration in the complex circumstances of daily life. And I mentioned Iris Murdoch before, and she said morality happens in the close at hand. Yeah. And so even just a cashier showing a cashier... Uh, some hint of recognition in the brief moment you have together, that's a moral act. And I think we treat each other badly. That's a sign our moral moral skills are deteriorating. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, and then the bigger things are like 20 years ago, two-thirds of Americans gave to charity. Now fewer than half do. Really? So what's that about? Like, I just think some decline, some, you know, in brutalizing times like our own, you can either be brutalized and calloused over or you can make this defiant statement and say, no, I'm not going to do that. And people will ask me, you know, isn't it dangerous to be vulnerable when people are nasty? Yeah. And I say, yeah, it is dangerous. And you're not, if somebody is toxic, you're not going to want to be vulnerable with them. That's fine. But it's also dangerous to callous over your own heart. It's, it's dangerous uh, to not have curiosity about people. It's dangerous to not understand the human beings around you. And so I, I'd rather err on the side of, of curiosity and trust and vulnerability, even if I get burned from time to time. Even if you, in a sense, pay the price. Yeah, and I think if you, I, I found in general in life that if you lead with trust, mm-hmm. that you bring out a better version of the people that you meet, and it's totally worth the, the betrayals that you sometimes encounter. It is so easy, though, to look at the world around us and see one crisis after another, one insolvable crisis mm-hmm. after another, and to feel so dispirited because you feel where's the leadership you know how do you get yourself out of this climate change being you know front and center right and you know what's happening in the middle east is so awful uh but and so there's a tendency to get weighed down and closed in and but my fear that turns into uh frankly what donald trump has which is this mentality that's a dog-eat-dog world there that morals we can't afford morality we have to be savage because they're trying to destroy us the ends justify the means I hope none of us want to have that mentality. 
Uh, and so the only way out of it is to is to be this kind of defiant humanism that I'm trying to capture in the book. In fact, you say to build pluralistic societies, and that's that's what we're building. We have mm. to be able to see each other and know each other yeah. and I'm, have some kind of value for the other person. Right. We, I mean, we evolved to live with 150 people, mostly like ourselves. And now we live in these wonderful pluralistic societies. But right now our social skills are inadequate to the societies we'd mm -hmm. inhabit. And so it's hard, it's hard to look at a person who's very much like you and understand them. It's harder if there's economic difference, if there's racial difference, if there's cultural difference. But it's also more fun uh, exploring how the way the world works. When I mm -hmm. was teaching, I had a lot of students for one reason or another from Ghana. Uh, and just they come from a very different culture than ours. Uh, you know, I would ask my American students, what do you want to do in life? And they'd have, oh, here's my goal, here's my goal, here's my goal. And I once asked a Ghanaian woman, and she said, well, it's not up to me. It's oh. up to all of us. And so her whole village was going to contribute to how she was going to, I mean, they got her to go to Yale, and they, the whole village was going to take a, a stand in how she was going to contribute. And so it was a much more communal way of looking at the world. And so that was a, a, that was interesting to yeah. hear her talk about how that how was going to work. That's a very different view than what you get in this country. For sure. We are the kings of the individual. <laughs> we sure are, for better or for worse. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. Our guest is David Brooks, and uh, I'm sure you know that name from his column in the New York Times and his appearances on the PBS NewsHour. And again, he's got a new book. We've been talking about how to know a person, the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen. You tell a very personal, very sad story about a childhood friend, um, named Pete Marks. Uh, you grew up together. You, you know, kidded each other. You played basketball. You just, you were really good, good friends. And he looked on the service like he had it all. Yeah, he had uh, served in the Navy and got, got a medical degree, became an eye surgeon, had a wonderful wife who I also knew from age 11. They had two wonderful boys. So his life seemed idyllic. Um, but at age 57, he got hit with a severe case of depression. And I consider myself reasonably well-educated, uh, but I, I didn't even understand what depression is. And I thought it was like I could understand it by extrapolating from my own moments of sadness, but that's not what depression is. The best description I found of depression, it's a malfunction in the instrument you use to perceive reality. Wow. So you perceive reality in inaccurate ways. And in Pete's case, he had these obsessive voices in his head lying to him. Telling, telling him, him he, he was terrible. You're right? worthless. Nobody would miss you if you're gone. And so he was seeing the world through a distorted lens. And I lacked the skills to know how to sit with someone in depression. So especially early in his depression, um, and a lot of it was over COVID when we were talking by phone, um, I would, one thing I would do is I would try to give him ideas on how to get out of depression. Uh, you know, he did service trips to Vietnam. I said, you should do that. You found it so rewarding. And I learned later that when you give a depressed person ideas about how to get out of it, all you're doing is showing you just don't get it because it's not ideas they're missing, it's the energies, the drive, it's all sorts of other things, but it's not like a project idea. The other mistake I made was uh, to try to remind him how good his life was, like all the blessings in his life. But that makes things worse. If I'm reminding him of things that are enjoyable that he's not enjoying, I'm just making him feel worse. And so I learned that's not what to do. And so gradually I learned that all you can do, first, uh, the futility of words was really powerful. There's nothing I could say that would have a big difference. But I could just show up. I wish I'd send him more texts, like just, just thinking of you, no response necessary. I'm just 
you're on my mind. Or um, other things could be, uh, I just said, you know, I acknowledge this situation sucks. Just acknowledge the pain of the situation and reassure him I'm not going anywhere. And Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Future Meaning, when he, he had faced a lot of people contemplating suicide in the death camps. Yeah. And he said, life has not stopped expecting things of you, which sounds sort of harsh and demanding, but it's like, no, you, you have more to give, and you're going to give it. And another thing I think you can say in those circumstances is I just want to admire your courage. You're under a lot of pain, but you're still here. And there's a beautiful quote from Thornton Wilder who, who, says, who talks about those who have suffered have a special credibility to talk to others who are suffering. And he says, without your wound, how would your low, your low voice would not tremble in the hearts of men? And then he says later, in love service, only wounded soldiers can serve. Mm. And so if someone, if I could go back, and Pete succumbed to suicide about a year and a half ago. Oh, that's so sad. But if I could go back, I'd just say um, that you have so much to offer because of the harshness that you've, you're enduring, and it gives you credibility to do a lot of good in the world. That's so hard. I mean, it's so hard but, to be with someone who is suffering. Yeah, well, and, and, to not, and to have that impulse to want to take it away. Yeah, yeah I'm close with his wife um, and kids, and you know they, they just had to keep reminding themselves that it's not the real Pete. It's yeah. not the real Pete. Um, and, and I learned, you know, I feel guilty. I didn't do, well, I, th- I feel bad. I didn't do things I should have done, but I don't feel guilty because the, the monster was just bigger than Pete. It was a gigantic monster. It was going to be bigger than us, and there's n- nothing I believe I could have done certainly nothing his wife and family could have done that would have altered the final outcome. Yeah. You write about wisdom. What's the before and after (laughs) of wisdom for you? Yeah. So the before was like wisdom is like Solomon or Yoda or Dumbledore. (laughs) Uh, It's the person who does the maxims, who who answers all our problems, say exactly what we need here. And I, I don't really have much faith in that form of wisdom. I have a faith in a kind of wisdom of somebody who has the power of receptivity, to hear our story, to see us in a noble noble struggle, to see us navigating the dialectics of life between freedom and belonging, and just to create this hospitable presence where we can learn who we are. Because it's very hard to learn who you are on your own. We tend mm-hmm. to lie to ourselves when we do it by introspection. But someone who can be a, a holding spot for us to explore and then who can prod us and poke us. Uh, and that, that's a beautiful form of wisdom. Mm. Um, I, there's a scene I hope some people remember uh, in Matt Damon movie, Goodwill Hunting. Oh, love that movie. And there's a scene you may remember, the Robert Williams character pulls the Matt Damon character aside on the, by a pond. And he says, I look at you, you, I don't see a confident man, I see a scared kid. Yeah. And he says, you know, you, you have all the sorts of books, knowledge you can get from books but you're too scared to really live, to love someone, to venture for something. And that's a beautiful form of, that speech is a beautiful form of listening because he's found the thing the Matt Damon character is desperate to hide, how terrified he is. And he says, I see you, I put it on the table, it's gonna be okay. And that's wisdom. And that's wisdom. David Brooks, I wanna have you read, I'm gonna pass this book over to the other side. I wanted to have you read near the end of your book here. And again, to, to our listeners, what I, there are many things I like about this book, but one is is how you reveal things about yourself, and yeah. I'd love my, to have you read that. My my readers told me be more personal, <laughs> so I put myself in the book. <laughs> so here's a passage from the end, and here what I'm doing at the end is I'm 
thinking, okay, I've I've done this all this research into how to know a person. You'd think by now I'd be like Sigmund Freud. I'd be like <laughs> I'd be able to pierce people with my eyes. So um, so here's I, in some ways I've gotten better, but there are still some some limitations. So here's a passage. My chief problem is that for all my earnest resolutions and all that I know all that I know about the skill of seeing others in the hurly burly of everyday life. I still too often let my ego take control. I still spend too much social time telling you the smart things that I know, the funny stories that I know, putting on the kind of social performance that I hope will make me seem impressive or at least likable. I'm still too much of a topper. If you tell me about something that happened in your life, I'll too often tell you about something vaguely similar that happened in mine. What can I say? I spend my life as an opinion columnist. The habits of pontification are hard to shake. And so that's me. I go to a dinner party, and I think I'm going to really get, yeah, get to be, know the people. Yeah, be this better and person, right? And then there's right? a glass of Cabernet in front of me, and it all goes out the window. <laughs> but do you think you're a better person than I, you were? I think I have changed. And um, I think some people who know have known me for years say I am quite different than mm-hmm. I used to be. And I, my aspect is quite different. I know more about human nature than I did. And if I think if people come up to me with the problems... Uh, I'll sit there and, and I'll explore and, and I won't be afraid as much anymore. I'll be a little afraid, but not mm-hmm. as afraid as much anymore. And I'll find it incredibly rewarding. And I used to think when people uh, go to you with their personal problems, they're burdening you. And I, when I went through hard times, I felt that. But now I realize I'm honoring them. And so when somebody comes to me with a problem, I find it so honoring. And I, take, I relish the chance to deepen our friendship. And so I, I think I'm better at that. On the other hand, um, sometimes I, I wrote a book called How to Know a Person, and I'm on a book tour in which I'm meeting hundreds of people. Sometimes I'm just tired. <laughs> so right. I'm not going to peer into every soul I meet these days. No, no, no. Well, I really appreciate you stopping by and joining us today on The oh, Connection. It's been a total pleasure. Thanks so much, David Brooks. And again, the book is titled How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And again, he's uh, an op-ed columnist for The New York Times. He writes for The Atlantic, and he's a regular on the PBS NewsHour. Charlie Kyer, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The show is produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us.